to Ephesians 5. Open your Bibles. Recently I was watching an old British movie from television done about 40 years ago entitled Little Dorrit. It's the story written by the great Charles Dickens and it's an interesting production it's similar to other Dickens novels. There's a bad man, similar to Scrooge, a little child. There's evil, there's even a um, workhouse, but it has a happy ending. But this production, I'd never seen anything quite like it. It was six hours long, but the first three hours was from the perspective of the man that gradually fell in love with little Dorrit. And then all sorts of twists and turns before the happy ending. The second three hours went back and covered the same ground from her perspective and filled in a lot of the blanks and they merged together. Occasionally I've asked married couples, how did you meet? How did you date? How did you decide to get married? And they look at each other, and the husband says, well, I'll go first. And he'll say something like, well, I was at college, and one day I noticed this pretty girl walking across campus, and I said, hmm, I'd like to meet her. And then he'll say, I saw her in the college cafeteria, and I said, you know, I'd like to maybe go over there and meet her and have coffee. In other words, he was making his plans like a hunter going after a deer. And then he made his move again and got to talking to her. And then the next semester found out she was in the same class as him. And so he sits next to her and asks her out. And the rest of the story is they started going out more and more and fell in love. And they ended up getting married. And then the wife will say, now there's a different perspective on all this, like little Dorrit. And she says, well, you saw me walking across campus. My roommate said, you usually hang out there, so I walked across intentionally knowing you had seen me. I didn't know that. And then when you saw me in the cafeteria, I knew that that's where you went to eat lunch, and I made a point of going there thinking you would see me. I didn't know that. And then I found out you were taking a certain class in college, so I signed up to be in that class. You thought you were chasing me, I was letting you chase me. I didn't know that. Just like little Dorrit. I tell those two anecdotes because it reminds me of what we're doing with Ephesians 5, 25 to 33. Our first message was on verses 22 to 24. Wives, submit to your husbands as... Christians, the church submits to Christ, her heavenly husband. And then our second one, we looked at verse 25 and following. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loves Christians and the church. And then the third message last week was that Christians form the bride of Christ and we are to submit to his loving leadership. And our fourth one, from, again from a different perspective, is this morning. Christ's perspective on this, how he sought out a bride and brought him to himself, and they will be married 
in heaven. So keep that in mind. This is that wonderful romance between Christ and those that are his people. Start with verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, the book of Ephesians has mentioned the church in almost every chapter. And I'll remind you, it's not talking about a building. It's not talking about a denomination. It's certainly not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. Some of you came from Catholic backgrounds, or maybe you know Catholics. Whenever they say the church, they always mean the Catholic Church. But that's not what Paul means here. He means all true Christians, not just those that say they're Christians, but those that are true Christians, they're their church. And the word means the assembly, the gathering. We're a local church. There's also a universal church all around the world, Baptists, Presbyterians, whatever, that truly believe in Christ. That is the church. Book of Ephesians also says we are the body of Christ, not physically, but A body has hands and feet and head and so forth. Jesus is the head. We are the body and we are different parts of his body. And this very section here says we are the bride of Christ. So there are these different metaphors that describe Christians in relationship to Christ. So it says Christ loved the church. Look at that wonderful word. He loved us. Now according to the Bible... There are two different kinds of love that God has for human beings. Number one, there's a universal love that he loves everybody because they're his creatures. God loves everybody. How? Well, because he loves us, we bear his image. We have some resemblance to him. But of course, we're also sinners. You can see how he'd love people that are sinless, but there are no sinless people. Adam and Eve were sinless just for a short time, then they sinned. So though we bear the image of God, we're sinners. We forfeit the love of God. Now, this should amaze us how God would love sinners. God loves angels that are holy. He doesn't love the demons at all. How can God love sinful human beings? It's because God is love. He has the desire, the propensity to give that love Just like a man has that desire to give love to a woman and a woman to the man. And in the beauty of marriage, it's consummated. They love each other in body and soul and spirit till death do them part. But what is it that attracts a man to a woman? Well, there'll be something in her. It may be her appearance, her voice, or they share the same values and goals. What attracts a woman to a man? Well, sometimes it's, well, he's so so handsome, athletic, and He's musical and all these other, maybe he's rich, but usually if a woman is honest, she'll say, it's not all that. I love him because of who he is. How can God love us for who we are when we're his enemies? We are sinners. The answer is because God is love. It's the abundance of his love, not that there's anything in us. So I repeat, There is this sense, according to the Bible, that God has a general love for all mankind. John 3.16, God so loved the world. Psalm 145.9, his mercy is over all his creation. In theology, we call this common grace. 
It's grace because it's undeserved and with sinners, but it's in common amongst all people, not just Christians, but non-Christians, because we're all his enemies. God still loves us. But the Bible also teaches a second kind of love that's not for everybody in common, but some people in particular. Who? Look at the verse. Christ loved the church in this particular way. Now notice the context that explains it. A husband is to love the wife in a way he does not love any other woman. What would you call a man that loves every woman the same as his wife? A cheat, a philanderer, an adulterer. He is to have a special love only for his wife, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't have a friendly concern for everybody else. So you see, there's a difference. The same thing I say with Christ and humanity. He has a general love for mankind that's undeserved, but he reserves a special, particular love for his bride. That's what it says here. Christ loved the church. (coughs) And according to chapter 1, this is the basis why he chose those to become his bride. We call that election, predestination. Though he invites everybody to come and believe in Christ, he reaches out and selects some, and he brings them irresistibly and marries them. And he has the right to do this. The great Charles Spurgeon said, well, human beings choose their spouses. Does not Jesus Christ have the right to choose his own bride? Of course he does. And he chose them out of this special particular love and this is reflected in us when we realize not just that God loved me because I'm a human being and his great love because I'm a sinner but when you realize he loved me in this special way it's like a woman that's now married and says you know my my husband he's very friendly to everybody but he has a special love for me I'm his bride I'm I'm his sweetheart I'm his precious ones and Sometimes I've listened in to where husbands and wives have those little pet names. I bet everybody here, this married has a pet, lo- pet name. You might call her my sweet or my darling, my sweetheart. We're that special sweetheart of the Lord Jesus Christ. That warms our heart to say, Jesus, I love you. Oh, I love everybody else. I even love the angels, but I have a special love for you. You are my special sweetheart. And we can say like the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Doesn't that touch your heart that you realize Jesus not only loved the angels and the whole universe, he not only loved all humanity, but he loved you in particular. You're not just a face, you're not just a name. You are special to him. He chose you in eternity. He died for you at the cross. He brought you to himself And you're going to be married to him in heaven. The Apostle John realized this. And seven times in the Gospel of John, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't say, well, he doesn't love Peter and these others. What he's saying is, he loved me. Nothing special about me, but Jesus loved me. Think of that next time you sing the little children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus does love me. He loves you.
Now notice that the word love is in the past tense. That could refer, of course, back to eternity when he chose us out of love, but in context he is mainly speaking about when Jesus died for us. Look at the verse. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for us. And that happened 2,000 years ago. That was the fullest display of his love for us. If we ever doubt of his love, go and meditate upon what Jesus suffered and died at the cross. He did that as a display. Yes, he guaranteed our salvation, but he did it because he loves us. The Father so loved us, he gave his Son. 1 John 3.16 says, This is love that he laid down his life for us. When he was on the cross suffering, not just in body but in spirit, think that in his own soul he was experiencing the wrath of God like lightning bolts and he was suffering in this agony. Why would he do that? Because he loves his bride. And it says here he loved her and suffered. And every groan that he cried out was saying, I love my wife, I love my bride, I love my people. It's as if every drop that came from his hands and his feet, every drop was crying out, love. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's the past tense. What about the present tense? He still loves us. He has never gone down in his love. It's never diminished. It's never ended. It could never diminish. It could never get greater because it's infinite and perfect. He still loves us. I heard someone years ago write about this, talking about love of husbands and wives, man for a woman. And they say, there's that golden moment when the man takes that that dare and he says to the woman, I love you, and I've never said that to anybody else. Some of you wives know what happened when that touched your heart. He says he loves me. Those wonderful words. But this other writer said, as wonderful as that is, years later it is surpassed when maybe it's on her birthday, anniversary, Valentine's Day, or just another day, and she's not having a good day. And he goes and hugs her and says, honey, I still love you. My love has not diminished for you. It's only increased over the years. The same thing with Jesus. Dear brethren, he still loves you. Not just when you got converted. Not just when he died on the cross. He still loves you. Remember that when you go through a major trial, financial, emotional, physical, Jesus comes to you and says, I still love you in the present what about the future? He will always, wasn't there a song a few years ago? Was it, Coach, help me. Was it Whitney Houston? And I will always love you. I think Dolly Parton recorded it. I will always love you. Jesus has pledged he will always love us. Like in the marriage vow, to love, honor, and obey. That's what the wife says. The husband says, I pledge I will love you. I will always love you. I will never stop loving you. Brothers and sisters, Jesus still loves you. In the million, trillion, quadrillion years from now, he says, I still love you. I will always love you. He died once, but he loves always. Look back at the verse. He gave himself for us. John 3.16 says, God, the Father so loved the world that he gave his Son. 
But Jesus so loved us, he gave himself. You know, we got Christmas coming up, and we want to give a love gift to someone that we love, a family member. We say, I, it's, it's a love that this is just an expression of my love. What could God give to us to say he really loves us? Well, he could give us the universe. He has. It says that in the Bible. He's given the universe to us to tell and to take care of for his glory. He could send an angel. But that would be limited. What's that old saying? When you love enough to send the very best. He sent the very best. The crown of heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ. He sent his own unique son. John 3.16. His only begotten son. The angels are not sons of God in this sense. He loved us to send one of infinite value. That's how much God loves us. He sent and Jesus gave up his hope. What more could Jesus give than himself? Notice it says here, he gave himself for us. Go back to the beginning of the chapter. We looked at that a few weeks ago. Verse 2. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So he gives himself as a sacrifice on the cross. That's what the cross was all about. And so we can say, not just that does he love me, he loved me enough to die for me. As Paul again said in Galatians 2.20, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. I, I draw your attention to the words, for me, for the church, in our place, and given to us that should touch our hearts. Not just, well, he loved all men and women. He not just loved the elect. He loved me. Brothers and sisters, meditate on that. Jesus loved you, and he died for you when he was on the cross. As if your name, your picture was right in front of him when he was suffering on the cross. Why did he do this? Well, out of love, but other things. Now, remember last week I pointed out something in this context that adds color to what Paul is saying. It's the Hebrew custom of when a man wants to marry a woman, he goes to the woman's father and asks for her hand in marriage, and he shows himself worthy. And twice in the Old Testament, we're told that the Hebrew custom was that he proves himself worthy by giving the bride price. Now, he's not buying her like a, you know, a beefsteak down at Costco. He's, he's showing that he really loves her this much, and he pays the bride price. It's twice there in the Bible. That's what Jesus did. Look at the verse again. He gave himself for her. He paid the bride price, not in silver or gold or goats or anything like that. He paid the infinite value in his own blood, in his own life. Now, as we said that there's that general love of God for all men, this tells us of that special aspect that we call particular redemption. He died in this special sense for his bride in a way he didn't for those that are not his bride. If he paid the bride price for everybody, everybody would become his bride. But only those that he chose, those that believe in him, become his bride. So I say again, this is a 
great verse that teaches particular redemption, that he died for her in a special way that he didn't for others. Just like you husbands. You love your wife in a special way that you don't love others. There are things you would do for her that you should do for her that you would not do for other women. Why? Because she is your bride and you love her in that special way. You're not called upon to die for other women. You are called upon. You are commanded to be willing to die for your wife. That's why Paul says human marriage is patterned after Christ. Christ loved this church in that special way and died for her in a special way. Theologians sometimes put it like this. He died in a general way for all people to provide atonement, but he died in this particular way for his people, his bride, to guarantee their salvation. He didn't guarantee it for all. It's provided and offered to them. It's guaranteed for his people. It's efficacious. He gets just what he paid for. The universal aspect has to do with the infinite value of his death. It's universally sufficient, and it's offered to everybody. But this special aspect is even greater. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her in this very special way. We sing about it in one of our hymns. He sought her and bought her with his redeeming blood. Boy, I could go on and on on this wonderful verse, but let's move on to verse 26. Why did he do this? It says, so that he might sanctify and cleanse her, that's his bride, Christians, with the washing of water, with the word. Well, the ultimate purpose of all things is for the glory of God and their subsidiary purposes. This displays the love of God. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Full display, perfect proof that he loves us. Also, it says in the Bible, Christ died to deliver us from the devil and from the evil world. Galatians 1, 4, Christ gave himself to deliver us from this evil world. Only Christ could do that. But specifically, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 1, 15, Christ came into the world to save sinners. That means he came to die for us. That's why he died. There could be no salvation without his atonement. It says in Hebrew, the book of Hebrews, Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Christ had to shed his blood. He had to die. But God could not die. He does not have a body. He is immortal. He became a man to suffer and to bleed and die for us so that we could be saved. And that's what's meant when it says here, so that he would sanctify and cleanse her. Sanctify means to make holy, to clean Cleanses us from what? From sin. Sin, according to the Bible, is something that is filthy. It's degrading. Far filthier than anything we've ever seen in this creation. It's abominable to God. Because God is holy, he hates sin. He hates our sin. And we're encrusted with sin outside and inside every thought, every deed, everything in our heart. And it incites the wrath of God against us. God would be absolutely just to send us all to hell. Why? Because we are dirty, filthy sinners. What do you do with garbage? You throw it in the garbage can. 
We are cosmic garbage that deserve to be thrown into hell. But that's where the love of God kicks in. God says, I still love them. And so he sent Christ to transform us, this is good, from being garbage to being jewels. It's because that's how much he loves us to transform us, as it says here, to sanctify us and to cleanse us. And then we're now fit to go to heaven. We're cleansed because there's no sin in heaven. So we're washed up before we get there. But by ourselves, we are filthy. Has that ever occurred to you? Have you ever worked hard in the garden or something like that, and you come in and you look in the mirror, and you're dirty. you got dirt and filth all over you. And if you're a man, your wife says, you're not coming into my clean house. Go out there and wash first. Get out the garden hose. God says, you can't come into my heaven with that filthy sin. It has to be cleansed away, and it is according to this, by the Lord Jesus Christ. He washes us absolutely clean. He delivers us from sin's filth and its guilt and its power. 1 John 1, 7 says that he cleanses us by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at the verse. So that he might do this. He doesn't say like that wife, go and clean yourself up before you come into my clean house. God doesn't say clean yourself up. He doesn't say Get baptized, be a good person, give money to charity, start saying prayers, come to church, and that way you clean yourself up and just maybe I might let you... No, it doesn't work like that. We could never clean ourselves up. The filth of sin goes very deeply into our souls. Only God can do it. And he does do it. Not us. Only Jesus. If you want to use a human analogy... It's not like when you take a bath and you clean yourself or you wash your hands. It's more like a mother washing the little baby that can't wash itself. But mama says, I will clean you up. That's what Jesus does. He cleans us up. And that's why he died. So it says he did, did this to sanctify us and to cleanse his wife with the washing of water by the word. Now, before I tell you what this water is, let me tell you what it is not. It is not, I repeat, not water baptism. That's what the Catholic Church teaches, the Episcopalian Church, the Lutheran Church, the Christian Church, the Church of Christ, the Disciples of Christ, United Pentecostal Church. They all say baptismal salvation. It's magic water. It washes away sin. Absolutely not. It touches our body, doesn't touch our soul, and the sin is in our soul. It is not talking about water baptism here. Water baptism symbolizes the cleansing. It does not produce the cleansing. I say that because, unfortunately, there are thousands, no, millions of people that are counting on their baptism, either as a baby, as a teenager, or as an adult, counting on that to get them to heaven. I hope that doesn't include anybody here. Your baptism does not wash away your sins. Only God can do it, and his chosen method isn't in the water of baptism. You can get baptized every day for 60 days, 60 years, 60 centuries. You can be baptized at church in the Pacific Ocean. You can be baptized. None of that could wash away your sins. Only God can do it. So what is the means? Look at the verse tells us. The washing of water by the word. 
That means the word of God, the Holy Bible. How does that work? Is this like a bar of soap and we're to rub it on us? No, no, it's like this. The Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. This is a special book. It's a supernatural book. It's inspired. It is still inspiring. The Holy Spirit speaks through this. When we read it, we're listening to God himself speak. And through this word, the Holy Spirit tells us about Jesus, tells us about his death on the cross, tells us about the blood, and at the right time, the Holy Spirit energizes that message in such a way it affects salvation in us. The blood of Christ is somehow spiritually applied to us and washes away our sins. But it's only through the word, not through the water, or our good deeds, it's through the water. That's why when we share the gospel with an unbeliever, urge them to read the Bible. That's not only where the power is, that's the chosen means by which God will save a person and cleanse them from sin. Jesus said this. John 15, 3 said to his apostles, now you are clean through the word I spoke to you. He prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them through your word. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. Same word is used here. Thank God that the Holy Spirit convicts us, converts us, and cleanses us from all sin. And it's permanent. Now Jesus illustrated this when he washed Peter's feet. He said, well, Peter... Person has taken a bath all over only needs to wash his feet from time to time. He says, you are cleansed by the word that I have given to you. Okay, we have been saved, but we still sin. We don't get saved again. We need to keep coming back and saying, Lord, forgive me, cleanse me, because I've walked through this dirty world and picked up sin, and he will continue to cleanse us. Look at the next verse here. Again, the purpose why Jesus did this. Verse 27. So that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Call your attention to the word glorious. Another word for that is beautiful. Spiritually beautiful. Ah, remember I said the filth of sin? It makes us ugly in God's sight. You ever seen something that is not only filthy, but it's ugly? Say, oh, I don't want to look at that. Eey. That's how we are before God. We are not beautiful. It's like that old, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Come on, let's be honest. We're not, we're not fair. We're not beautiful. The angels are because they're holy. But God changes us, transforms us, so that we become his spiritually beautiful bride. This is what the Bible calls glorification when we get to heaven and we reflect the glory and beauty of God. He does this in us. Notice it's both negative and positive. Look at the verse. So that we will be cleansed so that when we get to heaven there'll be no spot, no wrinkle, no blemish. And then the positive is we will be holy. No sin in us. Not in our bodies, not in our hearts, not in our mind. It's all washed away. We will be spiritually and physically beautiful, glorious. The Bible even says we will be reflecting the light of God's glory even in our countenance and in our body as well as our thoughts. 
And this is part of the destination of predestination. Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us so that he would make us without spot, blemish, or wrinkle, but so that we would be holy. Brothers and sisters, this is almost too good to be true. You think, you mean that's what's been going on, why Jesus came and died to do this for us in heaven? Too good to be true. It is true. That's why it's gospel. Good news. And this beauty is not something from within us. It's imputed to us the beauty of Christ and then it's infused into us by the Holy Spirit that does this work of sanctification so when we make it to heaven we are sinlessly perfect, sinlessly beautiful. Oh, I'd love to preach a few hours on this. The glory of God is the love of God and His holiness. Reading Jonathan Edwards on this just yesterday actually. And he said the holiness of God is the beauty of God. And when we meditate upon his holiness, we're saying that is true ultimate beauty. And it's given to us when we become Christians and are glorified in heaven. We become holy and beautiful. No more sin. Not in us, not around us. There's something more. We won't be like Adam and Eve before they sinned. They were innocent, but they could still sin. We will be elevated to a higher degree where we will not only be innocent, we will be incapable of sinning. We're not on trial, we're not on probation. We will be incapable of sinning. Not even one sinful thought or deed or word will be incapable. We will be as impeccable as the holy angels and, very important, we will be as impeccable as the Lord Jesus. He will impute that impeccability to us so that for all eternity we will never sin. He will never sin. We will march through all eternity as husband and wife holy without sin. What a wonderful destiny we have. Meanwhile, look down at verse 29. Because it says in verse 28, Husbands, love your wives like your own body. Loves your wife, you love yourself. Verse 29, Nor, No one ever yet hated his own body, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does his church. So this is another thing the Lord Jesus does. First he says he nourishes us. He gives us nourishment. He feeds us. How? Two things. The Bible says the word of God is one of the two means whereby he feeds us spiritual nourishment. The Bible is compared to bread. Remember Jesus himself said, Matthew 4, 4, a man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's the Bible. It's compared to bread, meat, honey, milk, vegetables. But secondly, it feeds us primarily because it speaks about him who is the bread of life. Notice, Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. What's bread? It's food, it's nourishment. You could live off just bread. There are people that live off of just bread, just like Asians sometimes eat just rice. Bread is a staple. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So he nourishes us through his word by giving us his own life. His spiritual life. What the Bible calls eternal life. Secondly, the verse says he cherishes us. 
He values us. Brothers and sisters, do you know that he values you more than he does all of the angels combined? They're his servants. You are his bride. He values you more than he does this planet or the whole universe. He values you. And because he values you, he puts his arms around you and says, I love you so much, I will never let you go. He loves us. He cherishes us. The Greek word for, cher- for grace is charis. It's a different word here, but in English, the word cherish comes from charis. And two other words come from that. Think of charis, care, and cherish. The Lord Jesus Christ cherishes his bride. You husbands, remember I said last week, you men better learn how to talk sweet talk to your wife. They love that. God gives us a book of sweet talk where over and over again he says, I love you, I cherish you. As if he says, I wouldn't trade you for 10,000 times more angels. He cherishes us. And he cares for us. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you. Lastly, look at the last two verses here. Verse 30, we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak of Christ and the church. Husband and wife unite, not only in the physical act of intimacy, but their hearts begin to beat together. They share their thoughts, their affections, their fears, their love, their joys, That's why I envy you that are happily married. What a wonderful gift, as I said last week. I'll say it again. A happy, holy marriage is probably the second greatest gift God could give us. And the greatest, of course, is to be married to Jesus. But it says here that in human marriage, a man and a woman, they leave their parents and they are now joined to the other. So you could say in this sense, one plus one equal one. The two become one. And yet they are still separate individuals. Husband and wife, they're united, but they're still man and woman. They still have different names. And the same thing when we become one with Jesus. We're married to him in heaven. We're engaged to him now. We're still unique individuals, but we're united to him in this celestial union where we're never apart from him. We think his same thoughts, feel the same affection for him, We're in love with him forever and ever. Nothing will ever part us. Not even death, because there is no death in heaven. In this union that it talks about here is spiritual. Now here on earth, it includes the physical, but in heaven it's only spiritual. We are spiritually united with him. 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And it says here that a husband and wife, they leave their parents and they start a new family unit. They still respect their parents, but they're starting a new family, as it were, husband and wife. But they leave and cleave. Cleave means to cling to, to be glued to. Who do we leave? We leave Satan. We forsake him. We leave him. We repent of our sins. 
so that we can be united with Jesus. So we leave and we cleave. And as I preached on at our conference a couple of months ago, we're united with him with union. And just like husbands and wives are united, they should develop communion. When we are united to Jesus, we need to develop communion with Jesus or what I call spiritual romance. Exchanging love with our heavenly husband, telling him we love him and drinking in his love into our hearts. What's our response? First, for the unbeliever, and there are unbelievers here, children and perhaps adults, you are not yet Christ's bride. Not yet. But you can be. And I've said this twice before and I'll say it for the third time again. Will you accept Jesus Christ's proposal of spiritual marriage? He actually condescends to say, I love you. Will you marry me? Will you forsake all others and be my precious bride? What greater privilege could we ever imagine? Will you say, yes, I will, I do. And then for believers, you've accepted that and you are engaged to him now. Your response to all this should be, thank you, Jesus. One way to do that is at communion. Do you ever do that at communion? Say, thank you, Jesus. You love me. You died for me. You saved me. And then back in the context here, it says, wives, submit to your husbands as, Christ, as Christians submit to Christ. We are to submit to him like a wife should to her husband. Doesn't she pledge love, honor, and obey? Shouldn't we pledge to love Christ and to honor him and obey him? But the main thing is love. You know, this ran through my mind the other day, and with this I close. Some of you ladies know Colossians. Titus 2 says, Older women teach younger women how to love their husbands. And the word there for love is how to be affectionate. And sometimes a bride doesn't quite know how to do that. Go to an older woman. They know how to please the husband and to show affection. The older ones need to teach the younger ones. As Christians, we are the bride of Christ. We are inexperienced. How do I love you, Lord Jesus? Ask older Christians. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you love the Lord Jesus more and more. Here's another lesson I could have shared a few weeks ago, but I'll fit it in here. I know a couple that I've known for many, many years that are happily married, very godly. And they said, here's a secret, Kurt. Every morning at the dinner table, we have a word of prayer, and we look at each other and say, now, how can I love you today? Is there some special way that I can go out of my way to show I really do love you? How can we love Jesus in a new way every day? Sacrifice for certain things? Maybe sing a hymn to him? How can we love Jesus every day in new ways? We need to learn how. And that's our lesson today. He gave himself for us in love 
We need to give ourselves to him in love. Let's pray. Father, we've only tipped our toes into this deep ocean of the love of Jesus. Deeper than the oceans, wider than the sky. Perfect. Could never increase because it's already infinite. Lord Jesus, all of us here that are your bride want to say from the bottom of our hearts, we love you. Bless us now as we sing and have communion. In Jesus' name, amen.